Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. VibeBio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. Collectively, we have the skills, we have the technology, and we have the passion. We now need the community catalyst to bring that all together, and that's Vibe. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to actually develop them. The Vibecast is our weekly informational podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development and technology innovation with some of the dynamic people that make up the Vibe community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. Our guest today is Ethan Perlstein, who I actually first met in person at the SynBio Beta Conference uh, in Oakland earlier this year. Uh, in 2014, Ethan founded Perlera PBC, which is the first biotech public benefit company, and they help patients navigate finding treatments for their complex diseases, and I'm sure many other things that we'll share today. So Ethan, welcome to the show. Oh, super psyched to be here. Awesome. And if you wouldn't mind giving the audience just a brief background about yourself and sort of how you, uh, your career so far and how um, you ended up here today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a journey. Um, I guess I became a biotech entrepreneur about 10 years ago um, when I left academia and sort of realized that I was a founder. <laughs> I think maybe a lot of people trained in academia, trained to be scientists. Um, I think a lot of them are natural born entrepreneurs, but they, they may not know it. They don't see many examples of it, maybe. I guess um, I was one of those people. Um, and they didn't call it founder-led biotech back then yet. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't have a name. It was sort of like, oh, you're, you're a postdoc and you couldn't get an academic job, so you're starting a company? Oh, okay. Um, so, but you know, that's become a thing now. But uh, back then, it was, you know, there weren't that many people. There were uh, people like Max Hodak and Elizabeth Irons and a few others that were jumping ship from academia back then. But it wasn't like a commonplace thing to do. And startups weren't, um, I guess, as cool as they are today. They were certainly very cool to me and others. But I think over the last 10 years, startups have sort of eaten the world. Um, but back then, it was kind of still like, Especially coming from academia, you're like going from one risky proposition to startups, which were perceived and, and you know, actually are most startups fail, right? So going from one failure prone enterprise to, to another just seems like, uh, wow, what, what was I doing? But uh, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be happier and, and haven't looked back since. Yeah. And you came, you know, not just from any academic scene, you were at Harvard University, you did a PhD there, you did a postdoc at Princeton. So you were exposed to a lot of, these uh, potentially other biotech founders as well, or who, who got the same sort of like energy and mindset as you. Um, and now, you know, Harvard, I'm sure Princeton, they have their own incubation centers. Right. For, they for they the didn't then. They it was didn't still, then, right? It was early days. Princeton, I would say, was a late adopter to the whole startup scene. Uh, but definitely, yeah, nowadays you go into, you go to, you go to Harvard, you go to Princeton, you go to a lot of places, um, not just the Ivies, and you see like, you know, biotech clubs and and biotech accelerators and spaces where companies are incubating. So 
that definitely has become a mature kind of national scale phenomenon uh, in the last 10 years. It wasn't that way 10 years ago, I can tell you that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so let's uh, sort of talk about how, you know, as a scientist, how let's form your perspective on life sciences, innovation policy and research funding. I know that um, it's an important area for you. Uh, and just want to see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we, I, I created Polar to be a very different kind of a, a biotech and kind of pursue a business model that, you know, is not standard. Um, and so I kind of have always brought that that perspective, a bit of an outsider perspective, um, but sort of this idea that, I mean, now I would call it what we're doing sort of DTC biotech. And I think we're actually like the first real sort of mm. direct-to-consumer biotech. Um but you know, I, I, I wouldn't have framed it that way uh, at the beginning of the journey. We were much more, you know, branded and positioned on this public benefit corporation uh, message, and that's still a very, very central message and vision of the company. Um, and there are some other biotech PPCs out there, but it's still sort of a non-standard course. Uh, so I think when I think about funding, um, and I think about company creation, and um, I, I definitely am not taking the standard point of view. Um, but I think that's good. I'm trying to shine a light on a different type of biotech entrepreneur. Um, I think the, the, the you know, Perlara focuses on rare, rare genetic diseases and, and helping families that want to help themselves. And I think kind of what we've discovered is that there's a whole possibility for direct-to-consumer biotech that's kind of built on, on these kind of unfiltered collaboration between uh, families and scientists that want to advance research together. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that has become our, our differentiator and, and our, and, and how we think about the, the world. Uh, but yeah, in terms of funding, I tried the VC route, you know, raised funds from angel investors and, um, and, and from sophisticated investors, uh, did that for a while, pivoted the company and, and you know, now we're a, a consultancy, um, and we're funded basically directly by the clients and our clients are these families pursuing their own treatments and cures. So it's it's um, hopefully going to be less of an outsider perspective moving forward, but it's uh, it's definitely not been the standard course. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because, you know, going direct to consumer is typically seen as really difficult uh, in many cases, especially in biotech. Um, but you're, you, you've been able to, you know, gain traction the way you're doing it. So it's really great uh, to prove out that there is a different way. You mentioned that the standard system just wasn't for you or didn't make sense or just wasn't as um it's probably less interesting too at this point it's very uh it was also i tried to go to standard way and a lot of a lot of standard uh investors in biotech didn't didn't appreciate this this vision of working so closely with families and letting them kind of guide you to the science let them decide what diseases to work on um it's, it's a very different mindset but i definitely tried to make it work with the establishment they just um, didn't really was kind of ahead of its time then and i think it's finally and maybe the times have finally caught up yeah and maybe the families have more of an understanding of the ecosystem potentially to feel more comfortable getting involved in investing or being part of uh, funding this this endeavor yeah i mean every year is almost like a generation in in like rare disease time and mm -hmm. that a family gets a diagnosis and arrives on the scene and they're <laughs> You know, they didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a whole. Usually, there's there's a legacy. There's others who have been working before them, other families who have been affected. You know, first. So you don't have to start from scratch. Um, but you see this kind of cycle 
uh, get faster, where each new family that gets diagnosed, each new generation of rare disease families can look back and stand on the shoulders of, of others. And it's literally like every couple of years, there's a whole new set of opportunities available to families and it's moving really, really fast. That's great to hear. Are you seeing like, I guess, what are some of the major problems preventing research funding specifically for rare diseases? Uh, because I know they have their own set of problems and, you know, in this current modern day economy. I mean, people have tried like, like crazy to get ultra, especially ultra rare. When you talk about rare, the reality is it's really that most rare diseases are ultra rare diseases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, there's, there's like large rare, and those are obviously have more name recognition, but most rare diseases are actually ultra rare. So like a hundred to a thousand patients known in the U S or maybe even in the world. So no one has figured out like the traditional biotech industry, it's, it's business model, um, the VC funded company creation model, none of those work for ultra rare they've all failed and we've seen many companies get formed on the backs of families and their early stage research programs have a bunch of rare ultra rare disease assets bundled together they thought maybe they could make it work economically by bundling and at the end of the day you saw companies blow up like Tasha and others and abandon all of these ultra rare programs um and so i think there really hasn't been a financially, economically productive business model for, for ultra rare. And I think that's, that's why we've been exploring these alternatives. Um, and it basically comes down to dropping the cost of doing research and finding actionable medicines. You have to drop that cost by like hundredfold, a thousandfold um, in order to make ultra rare disease communities financially interesting, right? Because at the current economics, and the current technology, it's just simply too expensive to justify the investment. So the only way to around that problem is some kind of technological advance that, that's, that's like massively deflationary and drives down the cost of, of finding these medicines. My whole theory is that what is that massive deflationary force? It's the families. It's pairing up with these very, very motivated rare disease, ultra rare. Again, rare is really ultra rare. It's pairing up with these communities that have been ignored but are eager to work. They're not just going to change priorities next quarter, right? <laughs> they're in it to win it. Um, there's all these things that make up for the fact that they're small in number, but kind of mighty in action. Um, and that's, I think, actually a hack. It's that that's that's until such time that some technology comes to drive down the cost of clinical trials or drive down the cost of arriving at medicine. And like AI is going to do that. Decentralization is going to do that. But like, it's going to take some time to do that. What's, what's a deflationary unlock that's available to tomorrow? It's, I think, collaborating with these families because everything just goes faster and therefore it's cheaper, right? And so it's not really a technology per se. It's the fact that these, it's the motivation of these families that's the tech, that's the platform, right? The parents or the patients are the platform is kind of how I say it. Absolutely. Yeah, I hear you there. Uh, my last episode, actually, the last Vibecast was uh, on Lafora disease. And we talked about, and this is an ultra rare disease as well. Like, Typically, I think a few thousand people in the world or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and families are a huge part of family communities are a huge part of the way that they're raising money now. They have, you know, a documentary out to raise awareness. But if it wasn't for these patient families, 
it, this wouldn't have happened at all. So it's really interesting to see that. And I agree. Um, this shift is sort of happening really quickly, at least from my perspective, I haven't been in oh, yeah. as you have, but just in the last few years, I think, I think it's a, a multitude of, or a, a set of different things affecting it. Digital connectedness, for sure. Just being able to talk to people more quickly. COVID probably helped with that a little bit. Um, and I don't know, I know the economy isn't necessarily looking too bright, but it seems like there's still money out there for, for a lot of companies. I think the flip was COVID actually. And yeah. for some of the things you said, but also because, I mean, remember there was a time there where there was like seven, eight, nine different vaccines competing and they were all different platforms, mRNA, AV, protein, um, and then who won the mRNA vaccine and mRNA 10 years ago, there was no such thing as an mRNA medicine. So I think what happened really is that everybody real, everyone with a rare disease realized that, wait a minute, this was a disease or COVID was something that according to the textbooks, it was going to, you know, we might have, we might not have a vaccine for years. Right. Remember, remember that's what they were saying back in April, May of 2020. And then, you know, we basically had the first first responders getting dosed that December of 2020, mm -hmm. less than a year before they even found the sequence of the virus. So I think when when that really dawned on everybody, and then they saw all the different companies competing and all the different types of vaccines, all the flavors, mRNA, protein, AAV, when everyone realized that that was the case, they were like, oh, so it really wasn't the science that was limiting. The tech, the tech is all there. It was just a massive global societal conviction that we must do this <laughs> and governments and everybody kind of like hop down, like saying, we're going to do this because everyone's life is at stake on the planet. So I think when every rare disease family saw that and then came out the other side of it, they're like, well, why can't we get some of that COVID love <laughs> for our disease? Just a little bit of it, you know? Um, and I think, you know, objectively speaking, scientifically speaking, I can't say to them that, that there's no hope. In fact, I say the opposite. The technology is not limiting anymore. I think there could be five different fixes for your rare disease, just like there were five potential types of vaccines we could have taken. And, and then once everybody realized that, I think that's what's created a lot of excitement, but also a lot of like, oh man, how are we going to fund all this? <laughs> because sure, when the world's economy is frozen, you know, what else? Nothing else matters. So everyone's, every country's going to throw whatever dollar they have at it. But for your tiny rare disease, not so much, right? But so I think anyway, I, I point, I, I see what you're saying that this, there is a difference in the last few years that's never happened before and many factors. But I think the major one is that we had this flippening and technology and modalities were no longer limiting. It was really just the will and the coordination and the capital to make it happen. Exactly. Everyone saw that the impossible is now possible. Like we can condense the number of years needed to do research and create a treatment from like, 10 years or four years or whatever it is to like, you know, a year. As fast as we Six can do months. it, right? As, as fast, fast as, as we can be do it. As fast as physically and humanly possible. Um, if if money was no issue, if resources and people and and uh, the technology was no issue, uh, you just got to, you know, churn through it, um, which is a lot of work, you know, churning through all that uh, lab work, research work, clinical work takes time. Um, but if you had the right people to organize it, it's possible. And the hope there's hope there now that it is possible and people are kind of motivated to do it. Um, and that's great. I think I'm hoping that the next 10 years will become even 
uh, more outstanding for, for everybody. I want to talk a little bit about being a public benefit company. It's just interesting mm-hmm. because I'm sure there's many entrepreneurs out there listening, or maybe even investors who are considering you know, public benefit companies. Um, what are some of the pros and cons to being a PBC? Yeah, I, I kind of had hoped by now there'd be many more biotech PBCs out there. Um, there definitely are. Um, so like one of the notable ones I like to call out is Mark, Mark Cuban cost plus drug company. Um, that's a PVC. Um, and there are others, but I would have hoped there would have been more. Um, I'm not sure if it's because of there are some cons that are perceived or people don't see benefits to it. I'm not sure which it is. I don't think there's any cons. I mean, <laughs> my first investor was Martin Shkreli if you remember Pharma Bro, mm-hmm. um, and his lawyers, very expensive Madison Avenue lawyers, didn't bat an eye in the term sheet and the contract when when it said Perlar PBC. And I'm pretty sure they understood that that was not 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 something that um, every company did. But it, you know, it's it's a type of a Delaware C corp. So it's not that's not that crazy a notion. I guess maybe part of it is that people don't see the benefit of it because they're just like, well, I you know, I can just walk the walk as a company and. Here's what my my articles of incorporation say. Especially if you're a private company, like it's like you know the, the board and the, and the shareholders, fifty percent plus one, they make all the decisions. So I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure why it hasn't caught fire. I think it will at some point. Um, but for me, the benefits of the PDC have always just been the ability to say that we were the first to just kind of be able to to talk about PDCs and just spread the word. Um, and being that evangelist has you know allowed me to talk to and meet a lot of interesting people in biotech, but it hasn't sparked like this movement. Um, and like I said, I don't think people see themselves as evil because they don't set themselves up as a PPC. A lot of them, I just think that they, yeah, they just don't see the advantage necessarily from a tax point of view, because there really isn't. Like there aren't like advantages for tax or other reasons. So it's kind of like a statement more than anything. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, there will be more people embracing that label especially as like Mark Cuban and that and, and cost plus, you know, gets more and more disruptive and gets more and more attention. Um, you know, PBC hasn't been like the headline of the story about them, but I think it, it will be more. And Mark Cuban has a pretty big platform to talk about it. He hasn't, you know, necessarily talked up the PBC concept. So I think there's room for plenty of head, head sort of headroom to grow, but uh, I can tell you 10 years in for a while, it's pretty lonely being the only body PBC, but um, I do think, like a lot of things, we were ahead of our time and the times are catching up. Yeah. I mean, in my view, I feel like it would give like the board or the leadership more leeway to do things for the public benefit, right? Of course, for the patients instead of quarterly results and things like that. So, so me- you could, but as a private company, right? You can kind of do that. And you, you know, I could, I've heard arguments from other CEOs based like, well, I can, I can do that anyway. I don't need to have this title of a PVC. So. Yeah, that's true. Fair enough. Um, so you know, personalized medicine, something that we hear all the time uh, for the last decade, probably, and mm-hmm. defined differently. How do you define personalized medicine? And do you think the industry will ever truly, how can they truly achieve personalized me- medicine? I mean, I think by talking about being a DTC biotech, that is actually, there's nothing more personalizing than that. <laughs> um, so will, you know, like, will the broader you know, will the, the will the legacy pharma companies like transition to becoming DTC? Like, of course, no, <laughs> that just seems crazy. Or, or whatever, I don't want to say too soon. Maybe, <laughs> never say never. But I think it's more likely it's a disruptive force from below than something that that is 
kind of spilling over the tops from from the the, the company that are currently on top. Um, so yeah, so I, I I can't quite sort of predict uh, the future there, but I mean I, I say that being a DTC biotech makes us really kind of the ultimate personalized medicine company because we're literally focused on people, a family, and when we talk about our research program, it's it's literally centered around the name of a child. Like it, and so there's there's nothing really more personalizing than becoming a DTC biotech, I think. Um, but there's still a lot more that that has to happen, I think, for it to really catch fire. Part of it, I think, is, you know, you call it personalized medicine. There was a while there, it got rebranded as precision medicine. You know, there was a time when it was, I can't remember, there was another individualized, like there's been many different adjectives that have cycled through probably 20 years total of people talking about um, this kind of stuff. So my way of formulating it is something I've called one to N. A lot of people have heard N of one, right? Like N of one, N of one, like the single patient. But I think we almost overcorrected in the direction to N of one. Um, and yes, of course, everyone's disease is going to be theirs and uniquely theirs and so forth. But I think the, the clear concept from a mathematical, statistical point of view is to say that every intervention is going to start with one. Like, And you can even look at Nobel Prizes that were awarded for a scientist that did a self-experiment, like the Nobel Prize for um, for uh, uh, for Barry Marshall to Barry Marshall for proving that ulcers were caused by a bacteria. He drank the solution that had the bacteria. So I think they're they're you know they're, it's not a foreign concept that that things would start with one, and it's just that um, we never really I think had an orderly statistical process for how you would do these low end small end studies. So kind of the thing that I'm talking about is like one to N, one to N saying, okay, forget about N of one. Yes, N of one is true, but the reality is in the limit, there is some human at some point in time or in the future who will have this same exact mutation. It's almost sort of, almost guaranteed given how many, how large the planet is, how many humans are, um, and just how, how the mutation rate works. So I think it's, it's less productive to talk about N of one. It's more productive to talk about one to N and how that first patient's a pioneer and how that first patient opening up and unlocking for for others. And if you're doing an N of one, like a single patient study, who's to say that you can't do that in a coordinated fashion? Who's to say that with our increasingly digitized connected world, that literally through our phones, we could be organizing clinical trials where we have families that are kind of texting with each other and saying, here's, here's I'm measuring this thing, texting the result literally in a group thread. Um, so I think that's the vision for personalized medicine to me is, is actually saying, all right, there are going to be these patients who are pioneers, medical pioneers, and they want to volunteer and they want to take on that risk. Um, so let's harness that and let's even coordinate a few of them. And so if you've got someone in New York and someone in Tokyo and someone in you know, Lagos and they all start a intervention uh, and they're taking the same intervention, right? And they all have the same disease. They can be kind of all in a group chat together you know, essentially running a clinical trial. <laughs> um, and then I think if you have, and then, then, then imagine that everyone had baseline data because they all wore these things and they all had kind of a baseline going into the intervention. And so you have three different people starting interventions in three different places in three different parts of the world. And if they all show the same improvements and those improvements are all recorded by that same device, are you going to say that's a coincidence? It's easy when there's a man of one. And it's worth digging into at that point too. It becomes point. like, you know, preliminary data and you can generate lots of preliminary data and that, to help get these 
maybe future clinical trials started. So I think it's, it makes sense. Um, I think the challenge is like getting that one dashboard or system or platform that everyone agrees to use right now. I think there's many people trying to do this, but the issue is there's no standard for, for this yet. I think Apple's doing a pretty good job though with their health kit. So, and um, they are, they are exactly. Buyer standards are doing, you know, that that's useful too for collecting EHR data. Um, but a lot of other pieces of information are just sort of recorded in unstructured data pieces or something. So yeah, it's really interesting. And of course your DNA, I mean, that's like something that we're still um, digging into in terms of like how we regulate people's DNA and, and store it. Um, but it's like a, it's the concept of a minimum viable product, right? It's like, what's the MVP clinical trial? It's a person. few people. Hardly. Yeah, actually, actually one in a limit. It's one, right? Exactly. But then it's, but one can always be dismissed because one mm -hmm. is vulnerable. One has no cover, but then once you, and then you have two, and then you can, then you skeptics can still say, ah, you got, you know, you, you, you've rolled the dice twice and you got, you got snake eyes. Okay. But three, then it's like, there's smoke. And then four, as you say, at a certain, at certain point, it becomes truth or it becomes real. What is that transition point? Is it at five, the six patient to show it? It's like, how many people do you need to see a parachute work on before you agree that it's a good idea to use a parachute if a plane's crashing, right? How many randomized controlled trials do you need to see before you're like, I'm going to wear the parachute? <laughs> so it's like the same idea, right? If you start to see enough of, of a signal, at what point do you sort of say this is happening? And yes, some patients will respond more than others. Some will... But like right. we have you to reach a confounding point. Confounding factors, yeah. And there'll be always confounding factors, but at some point you need the concept of a minimum viable clinical trial to provide the the, the validation to invest further, right? And and make it so that ninety percent of trials don't fail. What if what if ninety percent of trials fail because we, the phase one, two, three is not actually the MVP. We actually we haven't really been running MVPs. We've been jumping right into the product and calling it an MVP. But if we actually did a real MVP, maybe we wouldn't be facing ninety percent failure rates because. We would only really be committing to those things that pass the MVP stage. Interesting. Um, so for Pelera, I know there's uh, something called Cure Odysseys and Cure Guides. So Cure Guides can join the platform and help to guide uh, these patients. Uh, yes. But my question is, um, how much are people willing to actually pay for guided medical attention like this? Like, what is the like mm -hmm. willingness to pay? Uh, I can tell you because we've been sort of you know seeing what the market will bear for the last almost two years now. So we, we tend to charge one sort of flat rate of $350 an hour for kind of consulting, virtual consulting services, which I think is sort of in line with other types of professional services, whether it's a lawyer or other, other depending on their, on their credential and their experience. So obviously, there's lots of people who charge more than that. <laughs> um, certainly, there are people who can charge less than that. But that's what we found is sort of um, our rate, our flat rate for our consulting uh, work. And then for some of our lab services we provide... Uh, quotations based on the actual type of the project and what's involved. And, and those rates are not usually hourly rates. Those are more based on sort of chunks, milestone payments for, for a project, for a laboratory project. But I think, I think what we've learned is that, for example, we know that there are sort of families out there who would be willing to pay for even a few hours of an expert's time if it was focused enough. Like, hey, I have this grant proposal from this researcher. I don't know if it's really up to snuff. And you review and tell me thumbs up, thumbs down. And you know, people will pay us a couple of hours worth of work to do that. So I think we're interested in exploring that as sort of like a fiver for rare disease advice. So 
PhD scientists, people who we call cure guides who have some spare capacity in their day. It's not their full-time gig. They, they want to do this as a passion project and make some money on the side. We can kind of give them this chunks of work that these families need done. And it's very discreet. Um, and then some groups can afford a retainer where it's sort of like a chunk of dollars per month. And some groups have been on that arrangement for two years. But you know, a lot of these, a lot of these foundations are are community and and uh, immediate family funded. And so they only have so much in the tank before they run out of steam. Um, but we often are also working with families that haven't set up any kind of charity. They're able to self-finance, and many of them are kind of discreetly uh, doing so and can kind of operate and have kind of more of an extended runway because they're sort of just one family and they're just kind of operating on research uh, focus and not doing any community building, not doing any other stuff. So yeah, we've seen all, all, sorts, of, all, all sorts of sort of paying capacity and, int- and demand uh, in terms of what services people want. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. you know, we've talked about family foundations and how important they are. Um, and just thinking about the broader ecosystem of biotech, you have the investors, pharma companies, uh, researchers, early stage, later stage, clinical. Um, how are they viewing family foundations now? Are, are they also starting to see some progress? I know that you know large pharma companies also work with family foundations, maybe to a different degree than you may. But um, yeah, I just want to see like how what are the forces interact that interact with them. I mean, I think there are. Plenty of especially especially smaller biotechs that work very closely with like a patient advocacy group, um, and like you know what are the business terms of the relationship? I don't always know. Some charities and foundations are smarter than others when it comes to negotiating for rights and for other things. You know, some of them don't think about that because they're so you know caught up in the moment or just caught up in anyone helping them that they don't think that they have negotiating power. But yeah, there, it, it, there's nothing. It's very usual for for patient groups and especially in rare diseases, to work closely with companies, um, even the bigger companies as well, the Roches, the Novartis, they have divisions and, and, and smaller groups that would be focused on rare diseases and would make contact with groups. You know, they're trying to get data, they're trying to get samples, they're trying to figure out who's interested in clinical trials, they're trying to recruit the clinical trials. So it's all things that the families want usually. It's, so usually it's a very mutually beneficial arrangement. But at the end of the day, it's not always clear if these foundations are truly like acting as sophisticated in a manner that they should in terms of like demanding certain kinds of commercial or other terms and not just being walked all over, let's say, or not just seeding and giving up all their IP or rights to the university or the other partner. So I don't know how generous companies are in terms of like sharing upside, but, you know, I think I, I remember an example not too long ago, there was a, a foundation called, I think the Progeria Research Foundation focused on Progeria. And they ended up helping a, a biotech company that got a that got a drug approval, and the the foundation, the Progeria Foundation, ended up sharing in the proceeds of like the sale of the asset. So they negotiated pretty well. And but I'm pretty sure there's lots of other foundations that maybe didn't do so well or didn't know to do that. So I'm not I'm not casting any blame, but I think especially nowadays, most people learn pretty quickly if you're starting a foundation. That you should have certain rights and that you shouldn't just let universities or biotech walk all over you just because you feel grateful someone's working on your disease. And now with the upcoming web three technologies that you know we're seeing, I know there's still a lot of room for uh, regulation there and a lot of room for you know scalable technology uh, for the people. There is still this idea of decentralization and the ability 
the possibility of patients or communities owning a piece of the IP that they contribute to uh, with that could be their data. It could be their time or money or, or something like that. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a full discussion on tokens or anything, but yeah. Are you thinking, or are you seeing that this trend is continuing? Uh, this- I think so. I mean, I would like to one day think that clinical trial participants can get financially reimbursed for their sacrifice and their time. And great way to do that might be on, you know, you you get an airdrop of whatever token for participating and you best. The longer you stay in the trial, uh, the more compliant you are. I know for a fact that we have folks who don't take every pill when they're supposed to take it. That You've got to write that down in your clinical trial. What if you could increase compliance rate by... So I think the bioethicists will scream bloody murder and... But at the end of the day, I just think, just step back for a second. You have a group of people that sacrifices their time, their blood, their literally lots the blood. of things, literally the blood, sweat, and tears. And yes, they're getting access to a medication before everyone else. That's true. Um, but then that company gets to use that data to get a drug approval that is worth a lot of money. And the patients who volunteer for that trial don't see any of that money. And they're told, well, you're not supposed to. Your your reward was getting the drug. like. You know, basically just like who you would even ask for this. And it's like anyone in business would be like, yo, where's my piece? <laughs> uh, hello, I was an early stage and I was an angel investor essentially. I mean, yes, I got diluted, but hey, I, I exist. Like I should get, so I'm one of those, and I maybe that's considered radical, but I actually 100% agree that, you know, however we do it, whatever the exact rail, there is a way to allow for clinical trial participants to, to get compensation and rewarded for their participation in creating the research and the data that ends up being commercially very valuable. And one day, maybe a DAO owns the drug itself. And then distributions can flow just like they would through, you know, shareholder to shareholders through a private company or or through a dividend, you know, to a public uh, shareholder. So I think, yeah, I'm not going to be running that first experiment in Web3. I'm, I'm a fan, but like I'm not going to be a Web3 pioneer. But once that gets once that gets settled and and you know. The land is is is, uh, is arable, and like I'm happy to settle. But um, but yeah, I think we're still a ways from it. But I I'm I'm a radical. I think um, I think people should get paid for their contributions, and and kind of in proportion to their contribution, and um, and the medicine should be no different. Yeah, and that infrastructure is still getting built out. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. But you could also think of just the recruitment incentives would be insane, like insanely good. I think so. Um, I mean, I already know from the trial we're running that just because people are part of a community together, just the face, just Facebook alone has kind of given people a reason to care about each other, and they do amazing things as a community because of that. And now, out on top of that, the natural kind of inducements and, and incentives of a financial reward, if you know, if you actually succeed, not just like getting rewarded for for doing nothing. Like I think we've seen that in the great experiment of capitalism. That that's not such a bad idea, <laughs> and, it's not, and it scales. And yes, there's things to be aware of, and there's not a, not perfect, but like I don't see anything that does it better. So, um, but yeah, I'm watching with great excitement for these kind of Web three personalized medicine experiments to to mature, and they will. Fair enough. Let's jump back into like the Web two or uh, traditional space a little bit. Um, what kind of support do early stage biotech companies need to make them successful in fundraising? I mean, now I got to remember. What, what it's like to be in that mode. Um, you know, it's been a few years since I've actively, um, I guess, had to fundraise. On the other side, I've become now an investor. So I see 
uh, lots of companies, lots of opportunities. I guess, obviously, if you're sort of, I don't know, well, it depends obviously on the stage, seed, pre-seed, A. But I guess, and obviously, like the conditions here have been not great in terms of like fundraising for almost a year now. So I can't really tell you anything like, like useful, I think, if you're fundraising right now. But I guess the thing that I've been saying, so I'll just be consistent <laughs> for years now, is I think every biotech um, should kind of consider the following. You know, you're told, oh, you need to get preclinical proof of concept. You know, you need to get your mouse model or your rat model or whatever. Um, anything but the actual human being that you think you're going to affect. And I, and I always kind of push back and say, well, all right, let's say you did your mouse study and you got, and you looked at 10 mice and it looked amazing. Um, and then you, you know, you did a hundred mice and it looked amazing still. And then I said, what if I gave that same drug to one human being? Um, what, what data would you care more about the, the positive data from the human or the hundred positive mice? And then obviously everyone says the human. And then at some point it's like, you realize there's no amount of mouse. Like even if I had a data set with a million mice and they all were cured, would that matter more than one human? Like there is no amount of mice that would ever be, be, be worth more than one human. So once you kind of accept that, I think everyone should reorient their, their, their company that their first inflection point is, well, after kind of demonstrating the technology, their first real inflection point is clinical proof of concept in one human being. Hmm. Because so instead of like trying to pay for this beautiful rat study or whatever that proves it in 50 rats, what if you could use that same money and time to show that you got a signal efficacy in one human being? So I think I always challenge people to think that way. And most of the time everyone says no, or they don't because like in the pharma in the business development world, they're not looking for N of one data. They're not, they don't know how to profit that. They want to see the mouse. They want they have a they have a certain flow. So no one in the current thing is ever going to encourage anyone to break out of this, this this jam. But I think if everyone decided, fuck them ice, excuse my French, but yeah. you know, forget about the rodent. Let's use all of our, our money and resources to race to get clinical proof of concept in a human. It'd be like with the vaccines, what if we had raced toward a challenge trial? You know, instead of trying to get the perfect randomized control trial with 30,000 patients, and it all looked great. The data looked amazing, right? Everyone was blown away. What if we could have gotten there faster? Yeah. Um, that's sort of the provocation. I think the FDA, last year or so, I think we had, people are able to submit data and skip animal, or skip mice for certain drugs, not all drugs, but for safety studies, which well, is yeah, the, the so a little passed. faster, a little faster. Yeah. We're yeah, getting I think, there. I think we're getting that right. I think I think yeah, yeah. There's basically Congress passed the latest law saying that eventually you phase out animal testing for talks. Yeah. So I think there, we're going to get there. And like I think, yes, the reality is the sooner you can get into a human being, the better. And if that means taking that risk, well, then we better get better at what we put into humans. And we know we can get better. We know we can step up. So animals are not going to bail us out here. We gotta we gotta figure out a way to get into human beings as good as possible. So that's my advice I give to every founder, no matter what their platform. No matter what the disease, and I don't know if anyone's listening, but I think someday, someday people will. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ethan, I have one final question, and I want you to put your scientist and futurist hat on for this one. Uh, okay. What kind of bio, what kind of specific biotechnologies do you see making the biggest impact on human health in the next few years? Let's call it three years. I mean, my answer is that it's not actually a technology as we classically define it. It's this idea I was harping on that it's the patient's who are the platform. It's the fact that they will decide, I've got 50 different options. I've got RNA, I've got you know CRISPR, I've got base header. Like It's going to turn out that there's not just going to be one fix for, for one disease. It's going to be multiple fixes for every disease, just like there were multiple vaccines for one COVID. 
I think that that is going. So if that's true, then we kind of the ultimate platform is the families. It's the consumer. It's the individual. Um, it's not. We're not waiting for. And that and that is. And I, you know, I think A six and Z even said that in a recent podcast about you know like like th that that really the, the, it's like. The, the user is the platform or the patient is the platform. And I know that has a kind of connotation in a web two sense that's bad, but I'm using it in a sense where it's more like, it's not like there's going to be this one magic invention that will cure all diseases. I mean, maybe the gene therapy maxi will tell you it is, maybe the gene editing maxi will tell you that theirs is the one ring to rule them all. But I would say the one ring to rule them all is actually the parent and the patient. Um, and if you think about that way, if you empower them, the technology is sitting there. How much advanced would you unlock if you just basically gave them the capital and the know-how to run with the technology that already exists? And then new technology will continue to fall from the labs. And yes, there will be that one ring to rule them all, maybe. But in the meantime, we don't need to build any new technology. We just need to mobilize the, the, the platform that's already there. And it's a distributed platform. It's already a decentralized platform because the parents are everywhere. They're in all the countries of the world. They're, they're spread out throughout all sectors of society, right? So... That's my thesis. Is that the futurist? It's, it's the boring answer is us. We are the we are the we are the answer. Although I think actually that's a pretty exciting uh, possibility. Absolutely. I mean, I share your passion. I think you know us individuals, people, families. Um, they hold the keys to life, and we need to discover them uh, more quickly. And funding is part of that equation. So again, thank you so much for your time today on the show, speaking to us about uh your company a little bit and just the industry overall and i welcome you anytime is there any final words you want to say to the audience before we conclude here uh i mean it sounds kind of weird but i think it's sort of never been a better time in history to get a rare genetic disease because we know this is a solvable problem and there's also a community that will support you in this effort so um, we're going to science the shit out of it. Uh, it was Mars before and we're going to, you know, make it rare genetic diseases on planet earth. We'll be next. Fantastic. Thank you.